Today we begin something of a new tradition in our congregation as I want to deliver to you a message having to do with the upcoming election. I'm, coming, I'm calling this our Election Day Sermon for 1982 in uh, hopefully the best tradition of the Reformed and Puritan churches. And so for that purpose, let's turn this morning to hear God's Word as it's found in Romans, the 13th chapter, verses 1 to 10. Romans 13, beginning at the first verse, hear this, as it is the word of God. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore he that resisteth the power withstandeth the ordinance of God, and they that withstand shall receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good workers, but to the evil. And wouldst thou have no fear of the power, do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise from the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, but is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath to him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be in subjection not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause ye pay tribute also, for they are ministers of God's service, attending continually upon this very thing. Render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything, save to love one another, for he that loveth his neighbor hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And thus far, the reading of God's word. In the election day sermon, in a Christian church, have we not heard of the separation of church and state? Haven't we heard of the separation of body and soul? Don't we know the difference between the business belonging to the state and the business belonging to the church? How dare we do this? Don't we understand that the state might even interfere in our worship, might threaten our tax-deductible status if we dare to speak out on issues of public policy? Well, there is one thing to fear more than that, I'm sure, and that's that God might judge us for our silence in the midst of pervasive social evil and in the face of a pervasive Christian responsibility to do something in our society where a voice will be heard for righteousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do should be God-glorifying. The way you mow your lawn, the way you tie your shoes, the way you prepare your meals, the way you drive your car, whatever you do should be God-glorifying. In Colossians 3.17, he adds, And whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, if I were to preach a sermon this morning telling you to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, you'd all understand that. We're all supposed to say, in Jesus' name, when we get done praying. But Paul says, whatever you do should be in Jesus' name. Not just your prayers, whatever you do, in word or in deed. Peter adds his own exhortation when he says, Just as he who called you is holy, be yourselves also holy in all manner of living. No matter what the issue is, whatever the aspect of life we're talking about, be holy, be consecrated, set apart, imitate your heavenly Father. And so every aspect of our lives, whether our attitudes, our beliefs, our words, our plans, our actions, whatever the aspect of our life might be, it should be done in Jesus' name. It should be holy. It should be God-glorifying. And that includes voting. That includes our reaction to social situations. That includes everything. Because Paul himself and Peter spoke of everything 
as coming under the umbrella of these requirements. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not just our worship thoughts, not just our meditation thoughts, not just our prayers, but every thought. Whatever we are thinking about, whether it be the television program we're watching at night, whether it be the novel that we're reading during the day, whether it be the work that we're performing so that we might be paid our living, or whether it be our voting, every thought should be made captive to the obedience of Christ. So that when I walk out of the polling booth, I should be able to say, Christ is Lord, and I have been obedient to him. To put it very simply, and I'm sure most in this congregation will have heard of this phraseology, these biblical verses and this outlook that I'm setting before you is called a distinctive Christian world and life view. A view of the world and a view of life, a way of responding to situations which is distinctively Christian. There ought to be a distinctively Christian way of doing things. Whether we're talking about planting an apple tree or voting for a politician, there's a distinctive Christian outlook on this. After all, if Paul says we can even eat and drink to the glory of God, certainly everything else can be included. In Colossians, the first chapter, I think we see one of the grandest expressions of the need for a Christian world and life view. Paul tells us in that one chapter, Colossians chapter 1, then in the first place, everything was created for Christ. Verse 16 says, For in him were all things created, in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him. There is nothing in this world that does not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is for his use. Everything has been put at his disposal. Everything is his property. So all things have been made for him. Paul says also in this chapter that all things have been redeemed by him. That everything has been put at his restorative pleasure. Everything is being renewed and brought back to what God wants it to be because of the redemptive work of Christ. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. Everything. Creation was made by Jesus Christ and is to serve him. And when creation fell because of man's sin, it is being redeemed and restored and reconciled through him. Well, now look. If Christ made all things for himself, and if Christ has redeemed all things for himself and the purposes of his kingdom, it only stands to reason what Paul says in verse 18, that in everything... He should have the preeminence. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in order that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now you might say Paul didn't understand the separation of church and state, but if he didn't, so much the worse for the separation of church and state. Paul may not have understood what you consider the distinction between soul and body, but so much the worse for your distinction between soul and body. Paul says, in everything, Christ is to be given the preeminence. Now, before we go any further, you'd better stop and think about what that means for you, Christian. If there is some aspect of your life, some aspect of your behavior, some aspect of your plans, some aspect of your emotions, some aspect of your behavior, where you don't say, Christ is Lord in this area of my life, then you sin against God Almighty. For you are to have no other gods in his presence. And when you say, Christ, you may lord it over all of this part of my life, but this one narrow little slice of life is for me, then you are erecting another god in that area of your life. You are implicitly a polytheist. You worship God over most areas of life, but in this one little realm, you will be your own god. And Christ will brook no such rebellion. Christ will accept no such divided loyalty. Christ will say, I never knew you. All authority in heaven and earth, he said, has been given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth. Earthly rulers may not acknowledge it. We may even have writers across the land who um, dominate the newspaper and editorial scene who tell us that it can't possibly be so. But Jesus Christ is the authority in the United States of America. He is the authority in California. 
He is the authority in Orange County. He's the authority in Yorba Linda and Placentia. He is the authority everywhere and in every place, every time, and in every respect. All authority has been given to him on earth. So that in Revelation 11:15, it's no surprise that we read that the dominion of this world has become the dominion of our Lord and of his Christ. You see, all authority in heaven and earth has been transferred now to the hands of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Christianity applies to every aspect of life, and that's why we have an Election Day sermon, because we don't believe that Christianity is limited to this, just this or that narrow realm of spiritual service. It applies to everything pertaining to our lives. But look at the condition, and look at the direction of your society around about you. Christianity is supposed to apply to everything, but now just look at the world in which we live. You just think about the sexual perversion that is accepted round about us. And this last week, Planned Parenthood reported in a 1978 uh, survey, and they reported this, that there were 29,547 births to girls under the age of 15 in one year. Of course, it's always, it, it always sets us back when we run into one or two in our own, you know, circle of friends. But we're talking about an excess of 29,000 in one year under the age of 15, 14, 13, 12. Of course, Planned Parenthood has had a lot to do with that. I wouldn't dare read to you from a Christian pulpit all they have written in their various publications, but to give you a flavor for it, I read from one of their pamphlets that are given out freely to young people coming in for sexual advice and I quote the sex is fun and joyful and it comes in all types and styles all of which are okay do what gives pleasure and enjoy what gives pleasure don't rob yourself of joy focusing on old-fashioned ideas about what's normal or nice it does not surprise me that when you have an organization with the funding of the government behind it, publishing this sort of material that we have 29,000 girls under the age 15 getting pregnant. And of course, the reason that over the age 15 you don't have nearly that kind of statistic is because by that time, abortions are being performed to the tune of one million a year in our country. In August of 1981, a man was arrested here in Orange County in the city of Anaheim for strangling a 12-year-old boy. The man who was arrested for that crime turns out to be a habitual criminal. He has a 21-year history of arrest and is a repeated parole violator. A four-time sex offender, four times convicted, many times accused, four times convicted of sex crimes against boys and the crimes have become progressively more brutal every time he's been arrested. In 1977, he violently and sexually assaulted a 14-year-old boy in Cucamonga, but was let go on a plea bargain arrangement, thus putting him back on the streets in 1981 when he strangled the register carrier that he killed. This man, by the way, earned his high school diploma while he was at the state prison hospital's adult education program, and he was there serving time for molesting two boys in Long Beach. Out of the last 12 years of this one individual's life, all but 13 months have been spent in jail, state prison, or the state prison mental farm. We've read of the Tylenol murders in Chicago, the Tallahassee babysitter who was accused of killing two children under her care. By the way, three others under her care have died, and I suppose it doesn't take a, a lot of brilliance to draw the appropriate conclusion. Last year in May, in Garden Grove, right near us, a house was firebombed over such a significant dispute as the eligibility of a 12-year-old boy to play Little League in Fountain Valley when he lived in Garden Grove. We live in a violent, perverse society. Just think of the uh, 
financial situation in this country. Our taxes are up. There's no real tax cut. The amazing thing is the number of politicians that screamed when we talked about slowing down the tax increase. It was called euphemistically a cut, but it didn't cut anything. And even that slowdown has been knocked out because of bracket creep and Social Security upage. Social Security, by the way, although it's been increased, is now broke. As of this week, the government admits it. They're out of money. The national debt is running out of control. It's obvious, no matter what a politician promises, they're not going to bring it under control because they won't cut to the bone in the way that they have to to do that. Interest rates are being controlled by a federal officer. Unemployment is higher than it's been in 30 years in this country. Unredeemable money continues to be printed by the government fiat, and we're in economic ruin. We cannot control the violence in our society. We cannot control the sexual perversion in our society. We cannot control the economy. And when it comes to the freedom to promote the Christian religion, our society is in a terrible state as well. You've read in your communique for this week, I trust, that the Faith Christian School in Louisville, Nebraska, was closed this week by a federal, by a judge's order, a state judge's order, there because the school that was run by the church would not hire teachers certified by the state. And so the church was closed and padlocked. In March of 1982, this year, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the government may sometimes require people to violate their religious faiths to guarantee the common good. And that in a case where an Amish farmer was accused of not paying his social security because he said, one, we Amish take care of our own and don't need the government service, and secondly, we believe it a sin to contribute to it. And the Supreme Court unanimously said he must do what he deems to be sin for the common good, which, by the way, is broke anyway, but for the common good. You know, and that happened, and I didn't hear any screams of outrage, even in our congregation. Do you have any idea logically what that means? When the common good can supersede what you deem to be sin? In 1981, here in Los Angeles, Superior Court judge ruled that the Christian Yellow Pages could not limit their advertising to those who declare that they are born-again believers in Christ. That it was a violation of law, as understood by that judge, for there to be a document that promotes Christian businesses. Christian liberty is being, you know, snuffed out everywhere in our country. And yet a gay Bill of Rights law is presently before the U.S. Congress, with many cities and many states having already passed similar legislation which would prohibit discriminating against homosexuals when it comes to housing, even though you may own the house, employment, even though you may own the business, and social services of any kind. We believe in a Christian world and life view, but if you look at the condition of our society today, you'd better realize that it's time for God's people to speak up and to speak up loud, vociferously, persistently, convincingly. Martin Niemöller was eight years the prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. After being released, he had this to say. He said, in Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't the member of a trade union. And then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. If we don't start speaking up and don't start taking Election Day sermons seriously and the opportunity as Christians to do something in this land, the day will come when no one will be left to speak up for us. I fear, as I read the newspaper even this week, that that day is on us far sooner than any of us would have believed. Christians should vote. Christians should vote. After all, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and we would think it perverse of somebody to pray that and then to sit down and say, okay, God, drop the bread from heaven. 
No, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then we go out and do that which is appropriate to realize that petition. We work, and we expect God to give us the strength and the opportunity and to reward us for our service so that we have our daily bread. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us something else we should be praying about as Christians. He says, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men and for kings and all that are in high place in order that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and gravity. Paul says, I exhort you to pray for those who are in authority. Why? So that you'll be able to live a godly and a peaceful life, the kind of life that's pleasing to God. If we are to pray for this, we obviously are to work toward that end as well. We do pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can we pray, God, we want your will to be done on earth, and then not do something to see to it that God's will is done on earth? How can we pray that and sit back and say, what we mean by that, God, is that you just supernaturally break in from the heavens and do something. No, we pray that, and then we get out and do something about it. When you pray for kings and all who are in authority, that you may lead a tranquil and peaceful and sober life, when you pray that God's will be done on earth, corresponding action must follow. All the more because we live in the United States of America where, as the slogan says, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. If this is a government by the people, whom do you think God will hold responsible for the quality of government in this land? He'll hold those who elect and have the opportunity to elect government officials responsible along with those officials themselves. Christians are to function as the salt of the earth so that we preserve the world against decay and our society against degeneration. We are to love our neighbors. And if we love our neighbors, we must try to improve the society in which they live. We are to render to Caesar those things pertaining to Caesar. And what pertains to Caesar in this particular cultural setting is a vote. You know, history is replete with examples where only a few votes made a great difference in the course of history. Now, you would be under obligation to vote from what I told you already because you are to love your neighbor, you are to be the salt of the earth, you are to render to Caesar, you are to pray in such a way and to act in such a way as God's will is done on earth. You have an obligation to vote even apart from the pragmatic consideration I'm now going to give you, but it's amazing how often just a few votes have controlled the course of political history. In 1960, John Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon, and out of 69 million votes that were cast, the margin of difference was 113,000. By the way, there are more voting precincts in the United States of America than 113,000, and therefore less than one vote per precinct determined the president that year. Less than one vote per precinct. I have the best story along these lines that I've ever heard that I want to relate to you. In 1842, many years ago, an Indiana farmer by the name of Henry Shoemaker cast the tie-breaking vote for his state legislator, a representative to the state capitol. Now, in that time, U.S. senators were chosen by the state legislators. Okay, so that's a little bit different than what we have today. But when you voted for the man who, out of your neighborhood, would represent you in the state capitol, those representatives in the state capitol chose the U.S. senator to go to the federal capitol and vote for them. So anyway, Henry Shoemaker cast the tie-breaking vote for his state legislator. And in 1843, the next year, that state legislator, that representative, broke the tie in voting for Edward Hannigan to become the U.S. senator from Indiana. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? When one man breaks the vote in favor of this fellow, and this fellow breaks the vote in favor of sending a senator to the United States Senate. But the story's not over. In 1845, Hannigan, the senator, cast the deciding vote, which brought Texas into the Union. And if you know anything about the history of the United States, you know what a significant political event that was, and how that led up even to the war between the states. And in 1846, the next year, Hannigan broke the tie in the Senate, over the United States going to war with Mexico. 
And so if you want to put it all together, it's the old story of for the want of a nail, the shoe, and for the want of the shoe, the horse, and the horse, the, the whatever it was, the troop, and then finally the, the war. That one farmer's vote had a profound effect in shaping American history. In one sense, that one farmer's vote sent us into war with Mexico and brought Texas into the Union, if you want to look at it that way. Votes do make a difference. And even if you don't think, well, my one vote's going to have that dramatic effect, the fact of the matter is that that vote is a witness to righteousness. Even though it comes anonymously, it's a witness to righteousness if it's properly placed, and it must be given. But should I be preaching on this? Should preachers try to guide Christian living when it comes to these things? Well, of course we should. The scope of preaching, as I believe it, should be as wide as the scope of Christian belief and behavior. And if you, as I've been arguing, are under moral obligation to vote and to vote in a Christian way according to a Christian world and life view, then I'm under obligation as your pastor to instruct you in those matters. Since believers are to vote, there ought to be pastoral guidance from God's Word, of course, and to whatever degree I don't preach from God's Word, disregard what I tell you, but from God's Word there should be guidance pertaining to this matter. After all, Acts 20 verse 27 says we are to preach the whole counsel of God. And so we have only two choices. We can either say God's counsel doesn't include politics, or we can preach on politics. Political preaching is really a necessity. Because at the heart of it, the Christian faith believes and the Christian preacher preaches that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios. In the days of the early church, that was not only heresy in the eyes of the Jews, it was rebellion against the Roman state. Because Caesar was kurios in the early days of the church. He declared that he was Lord and everyone should worship him. And now after that you could worship Jesus if you wanted, but Caesar had to be acknowledged as Lord. Look at Acts 17, verse 7. When Paul is preaching in Thessalonica, a great disturbance is raised against his preaching. In fact, the house of Jason is surrounded, and the crowds are speaking of this Jason, having received people that have turned the world upside down. And then these words, And these all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Don't you see, that was absolutely unacceptable to say that there was another king. To say that Jesus lords it over Caesar. And to preach it was contrary to the decrees of Caesar. It was rebellion against Rome. And for that, Paul had to flee Thessalonica. Political preaching is in the best tradition of the New Testament, not to mention the best tradition of the Reformed churches. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 8, notice what Paul, this is his swan song to Timothy. The last thing Paul will write and he says to Timothy, I charge thee in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, who shall judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be urgent in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust, and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto fables. But be thou sober in all things. Suffer hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill thy ministry. For I am ready, being offered, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. Where was Paul when he wrote these words? In a Roman prison, suffering for preaching contrary to the decrees of Caesar. He said, I finished the course. I've done what Jesus wants me to do. I'm waiting for the righteous Lord and judge to reward me. And Timothy, you do the same. Fulfill your ministry. And don't worry about these people with their itching ears who are looking to hear just the right thing. Friends, I'm sorry to tell you, there are people, even in our own congregation, who don't want to hear political preaching. They have a preconceived notion of what Christianity is and just how far it goes. And if you dare step over that line, it is offensive. This is not what their ears want to hear. 
And so, like a window shopper, they will choose their preacher and choose their congregation and choose what they hear based on what they want, what their own taste and preferences might be. But Timothy is told by Paul, don't you look at those people. Don't you be governed by such people. Let them have their itching ears. You satisfy the Lord Jesus Christ and worry about the results on the day of judgment. Now I recognize there's great potential for misunderstanding and disagreement if I preach in political subjects, obviously, and that for a number of reasons. First of all, ethical decisions are not nearly as simple as people think. Ethical reasoning involves not only a moral precept, you have to know what the right thing to do is, but you have to know something about the world to which that precept applies. Not only must you have a moral precept and an observation about the world which is accurate, you must reason correctly, logically. And a lot of people don't have that ability, or don't have that interest. And so you have a moral precept applied to a factual observation with good reasoning, logical reasoning. Now that's just in the simplest of cases. An example, we might say God wants us to preserve the ecological balance. The draining of this swamp will disturb the ecological balance, therefore we shouldn't drain this swamp. Okay? There is a moral precept, God wants us to preserve the ecological balance. A factual observation, draining the swamp will not do that, and therefore we draw the conclusion we oughtn't to do it. But now what if my facts are wrong? What if I think draining the swamp will disturb the balance, but it won't? What if I've just been misled on that? Then I'm not going to draw a proper ethical conclusion, am I? And what if I can't move from an if-then proposition to a conclusion? Well, then I'm also going to be misled. And what if I'm wrong? What if God doesn't care about the ecological balance? Then I'm applying my own standards rather than God's. And so you see, ethical reasoning requires you not only have your, uh, your principles biblical, your facts straight, and your reasoning correct. You do all three of these together. But now when it comes to political decisions, the thing is much worse because often we have two legitimate moral concerns competing with one another. For instance, social stability over against individual liberty. Both of those in general are good things to pursue, but they come into conflict with one another. Often one politician and another politician are arguing, and the reason they can get people to follow them is because each have a legitimate but limited moral concern. Neither one of them balancing both of those considerations, or three or four, whatever may be involved. So not only is it hard enough in an, in an ordinary moral uh, process of moral reasoning to come to the right conclusion, in politics, obviously, there are legitimate moral concerns that compete with one another. There are in tension with one another. And many relevant facts have to be considered. Often the factual situation is very complex. We talk about, for instance, a nuclear arms freeze. And wouldn't it be nice if we knew, as a matter of fact, the facts about nuclear arms? But we don't. There's a good reason why we don't. The government doesn't give us the straight story and that sort of thing. And anybody who thinks they have the straight story is extremely naive. I don't know precisely what the Soviet Union has, and I certainly don't know precisely what the United States government has. And I do know this, that no matter what either side has, whatever agreement is signed, both are going to cheat. Both are going to cheat. And so when you have this complicated factual situation, it's very hard to apply moral principles and to be very simple and naive about it. Moreover, much of the logic that is to be used in moral reasoning is obscured in politics by intense feelings and intense rhetoric. And so where it seems that it's, we're being so logical, for in, I mean, one of, the, one of the best advertising campaigns I think I've seen in recent years, why punish you know, all of us for the bad manners of a few about the... Um, the deposit on bottles law, excellent rhetoric. Terrible reasoning, but excellent rhetoric. If the bad manners of a few of us happen to be the bad manners of abortion, I'm willing to punish the whole society. I'm willing to tax, to incarcerate, to execute if need be, to save the lives of the innocent. So you see, it all depends on what we're talking about. So please, my friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, would you recognize the great potential here for misunderstanding and for disagreement? If we disagree this morning, so be it. But let us disagree as Christians. Then let us show each other patience and tolerance and charity as we discuss these political questions as believers. 
Because if we are believers, the one thing for certain that we hold in common is a openness to hear God's word. And so I will be open to you if you want to correct my conclusions this morning. And I hope you will be open to the preaching of the word if what I say doesn't happen to scratch where you're itching. If your ears want to hear one thing and I say another, please, in charity, in tolerance, in patience, at least be open to the word of God. That's an awfully long introduction. Everybody goes, oh no, you mean that's only the introduction? That's only the introduction. You must vote because we believe in a Christian world and life view. And if you as a Christian must vote on these things, I must preach on these things. But actually when it comes down to it, what I want to tell you this morning won't take that much longer. Romans the 13th chapter gives us the principles that I want you to apply when you go to the ballot box in a week and a half. I have two things to say. The second one has some subpoints, so don't get upset if you think I have multiple endings to today's exhortation. The first thing I want to tell you is that voting should express loyalty to God's principles above all. Voting is an opportunity to say no matter what the consequences, God comes first. Loyalty to the state is always conditioned upon a higher loyalty to God. For you see, Christians comply with the state, to use Paul's words, not simply out of fear of compulsion, but for the sake of conscience. I vote the way I do so that my conscience be not offended, my conscience before God. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.13, for the Lord's sake we comply. Not just out of fear of the consequences, but we comply with the state and the opportunities of promoting righteousness in the state for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of conscience. And it's only for that reason that the apostles could say in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men, because they recognized the highest priority, even in politics, is the principles of God's word. And so in voting for a candidate, this may strike you as strange, but in voting for a candidate, the issue is not his or her personal religion. In voting for a candidate, it's not the personal religion that is professed by the candidate, but the outworking of that religion and the principles of justice. Amos, the fifth chapter, I think, puts this as dramatically as anything could. You know how Amos calls upon Israelite society to obey the words of God, even in the social dimension. But he adds something about Israelite religion when he says, and this is Amos 5, verse 11, For as much, therefore, as ye trample upon the poor and take exactions from him of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink the wine thereof. For I know how manifold are your transgressions and how mighty are your sins. Ye that afflict the just, that take a bribe, and that turn aside the needy in the gate from their right. And down to verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast, and I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Yea, though ye offer me your burnt offerings and meal offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let justice roll down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream." God says, away with your religious service. Show me justice. So vote against born-again antinomians. By all means, vote against them. When justice is recognized, vote for justice. And if a man who is an atheist runs against the man who claims to be a Christian, and if by some quirk, the atheist supports the principles of justice in God's word, and the Christian says, no, it's all within our hearts, and we'll just decide subjectively. By all means, vote against the Christian and for the atheist under those circumstances. Away with the solemn assemblies, away with all your noise and your songs and all your professions of faith. Let me see justice, God says. Now, we should expect that Christians will be the ones most likely to enact and to support the principles of justice in God's word. But when they are not, and when they, from the very outset they say, well, we have to have this sense of love and this internalization of moral precepts and this subjective way to making public decisions, 
then don't you dare tolerate it. So voting should express loyalty to God's principles above all. And what are God's principles? Well, I have five of them here I want you to remember. In Romans, the 13th chapter, Paul says, first of all, rulers should acknowledge accountability to God. And say, now wait a minute. Didn't you just get done saying vote for an atheist and not for a Christian if the following conditions are met? Yes, I did. But when you're looking for a ruler who's going to acknowledge, I mean, that's going to do the things that God wants him to do, Paul says you better look for rulers that acknowledge their accountability to God. Obviously, a man who does not see that he's accountable to God is not very likely to make decisions out of a sense of justice, fair play, whatever the consequences. He's going to favor himself, favor his friends, favor whoever has given him the money for his campaign, whatever it may be. Paul says, all those who are ordained have been ordained of God and will answer to God. They are God's ministers. Secondly, God's principles include this, that rulers should not terrorize good citizens. The laws that are passed by rulers ought not to jeopardize the well-being of those who are godly. Rulers who jeopardize the lives, the financial fortunes, and the peace, the tranquility of God's people must not be elected. Thirdly, Paul says rulers should avenge God's wrath against lawbreakers. Romans 13 tells us in verse 4 that the very purpose for which God has a minister in the state is to avenge his wrath against those who work evil. And if you have any question in your mind as to what evil is in Paul's sight, in Romans 13.10, he says, Love works no evil, the same Greek word is used, love works no evil against his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Those who violate God's law do not act in a loving way because they work against the well-being of their neighbor. Love will not work such evil. The standard in Paul's eyes was always God's eternal law. Summarized, of course, in love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But when rulers pass laws which terrorize the good and which tolerate the evil, don't you vote for them. Fourthly, rulers should protect their subjects. Verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13 would indicate that. They are to be a terror to the evil, whether they be invaders from outside or criminals from inside. Verse 10 has said it also, love works no ill to the neighbor. The ruler must see to it that those who are good citizens are not terrorized by those who are bad citizens or by people who are foreign invaders. So that even involves uh, military preparedness if you're going to be a good ruler. The fifth principle is given, I think, in verse 8 when we read, Owe no man anything save to love one another. When it comes to financial affairs, though we have an obligation to pay our taxes, all men are under obligation to stay out of debt. And that means you personally must stay out of debt, and it means rulers should stay out of debt too. And the use of money should be accorded with the law of God. If we give our taxes for conscience' sake, God certainly expects rulers to honor the Christian's conscience in the way that they spend their money. And so we have two things we're going to vote on in a week and a half. Politicians and propositions. And now I'm going to tell you how to vote. Isn't that terrible? By this time you should be prepared for it. You may not agree. Obviously I'm not going to be in the polling place to tell you what to do and to punish you if you don't. But it seems to me that God has said in his word that you should vote against people who would fund abortion or who would tolerate it. And you have some people running for office that do that. It seems to me that God's word teaches that those who promote the rights, alleged rights, of homosexuals against discrimination should be voted against. God's word supports capital punishment. If you know a politician who does not, he does not say what God says on the subject. Don't vote for him or her. We believe in religious liberty, the right of Christians to teach their children in the way that they think is right. As a step in the proper direction, certainly not the whole ball game, 
But I think you should be asking politicians whether they support tax credits for private schools. There may be other ways of doing that. But they must be willing to see that Christians do not have to bear a double responsibility of educating their children and paying for it, and then paying for their neighbor's children as well in schools that they don't even believe in. We have a number of propositions before us. By the way, I, I have it here in case we get into a discussion this morning, the uh, explanation of these. And as I was preparing for this sermon and making sure I had read all this and done my homework, and that's quite a task. You all, by the way, should do that before you go to the polls. But as I was doing that, I was taken at the overwhelming majority of these things are financial propositions. You know, permission to taxes and taxes and taxes more. More and more money. Now, how should you decide on these things? My, the temptation, and I say this only as an aside, isn't it? My temptation is to say, vote against them all. Just, just make it a general policy. Don't give any more money to the government. They misuse it anyway. But that obviously is not what God wants you to do, so forget that. I mean, that's only my frustration coming out when I say that. You have to ask yourself, what should a government use money for? Let's assume that a government wants to spend money on pepperoni pizzas for everybody. Just take that as an illustration. Now, if you think that's horrendous, just think of this. When the government comes knocking at my door with rifle, bayonet, whatever, bazooka in hand, and they say, you pay no matter what, and I say, well now, okay, as my last dollar has been given to the government, what's this money going for? So that your neighbor can have a pepperoni pizza. Remember that the government does not have the right to take money for just anything it wishes. The government may only tax us for those things which are godly purposes, for those things which support God-given ends for government, which would include, of course, defense, criminal prosecution, public administration in some, uh, in some forms. Now, when you're asked to support a proposition that is going to take more money out of your pocket, but that's self-interest, more money out of your neighbor's pocket for something you believe in, ask yourself, do I have the right to force my neighbor to support what I want? My guess is you'll vote against most of them anyway. It was not personal frustration, but moral principle that will lead you to that conclusion, though. What should money be spent for? We also have something in here. By the way, money is spent for such things as criminal prosecution and the punishment of, uh, of crimes. One of the propositions asked for money to improve the prison system. Now you're in a real tight situation as a Christian because we don't believe in the prison system as God's way of executing justice on criminals. And so I'm not going to tell you how to vote on that, but let me just suggest to you that that's one of those things where you have these conflicting moral principles and you're in a tense situation. Ask yourself, what will be the alternative? If you believe, as a matter of fact, that the failure to give more money for prison reform will nudge politicians to the point of calling for the death penalty and restitution instead of incarceration, well then, maybe that would be a good thing to do. But if you're convinced that by not giving them money it's going to exacerbate a terrible prison situation and make more violent criminals out of these people, and that the state will not punish them in other ways, but will simply say, we'll have to let some people out on the street because we can't keep them all, then you'd better ask yourself, as a stepping stone in the right direction, whether we shouldn't improve the prison system. I'm not telling you which way to come down on that, but remember, the state can spend money for dealing with crime. And do we want it to be spent on a limited measure that doesn't go God's direction all the way anyway, or do we want them to be without? There's also a proposition having to do with um, economic concerns, this bottle deposit law. The principles that Christians should recognize here are those of the free market. I'm going to ask, does the government have the right to step in and to encourage manners, um, the uh, preventing of uh, pollution, uh, littering of our highways, whatever it may be, by assessing fines and forcing the bottling companies themselves to uh, pay the freight on that? Is that social reform that some particular industry has to bear or not? Then there are two final things, the most controversial of all, and since my time is out, I will probably just have to say a word quickly and avoid the controversy. What should we do about the nuclear arms freeze? 
Well, the one thing I hope you will do is not be naive, is to think that you know what the situation is. I mean, no government in its right mind is going to let the populace know exactly where it stands on that sort of thing. And no government, when it thinks it's threatened, is going to live up to such an agreement anyway. When it is threatened and it feels that it must cheat in order to survive, it will prefer, survi it will prefer survival to honoring some paper agreement. Is nuclear war contrary to the word of God? Wars of annihilation are contrary to the word of God. There are no more holy wars, no more wars where everything is burned off the land. But please don't accept the rhetoric that says nuclear war is automatically a war of annihilation. That too is overstating the balance of propriety and truth. As to gun control, Remember that one of our principles is that a government must not penalize good citizens in favor of criminals. On the other hand, Christians are those who promote peace because we worship the Prince of Peace. And so when you go into the ballot, to ballot on that particular issue, I hope you remember love toward your neighbor and perhaps his need to defend himself but also the violence that is so characteristic of our society. Well, maybe the election sermon in 1984 will be a little more pointed. But for a beginning, I think this is good. Let us remember that we as Christians bear a responsibility for the condition of our society. Voting is a way of dealing with that, a limited but nevertheless an important way of dealing with that. Preaching must cover all areas of Christian living, and that's what I've tried to do very briefly this morning. And there are a few particulars when it comes to voting for your politicians and propositions that I hope all of you will bear in mind. And toward that end, I trust that the kingdoms of this world will indeed have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and will make it evident on November 2nd. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that we would be filled with love and devotion and submission to the King of Kings. And we do pray that it would be more evident to the nations of this world to the politicians of this particular nation, that it would be more evident in our own state and our own neighborhoods that Jesus is Lord. And we ask that you would give us power as your people to make his will be done on earth, even as we know it is done in heaven. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.